I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. It's the second in our massive two-part conversation with Douglas P. Horn about his book, The McCollum Memorandum, A Story of Washington, D.C. in 1940-1941. And in this part of the episode, we'll really be diving into the meat and potatoes of the book, including its examination of the Argentia Conference, as well as code-breaking efforts by both Americans and the British. So strap in, because this is going to be one doozy of an episode, the second part in our conversation again with Douglas P. Horn, author of The McCollum Memorandum, a story of Washington, D.C. in 1940-1941, However, before we get to that, a word about one of our sponsors. Are you looking for holistic therapy? Working out issues related to trauma, grief, PTSD? Maybe you're having issues related to LGBTIQ or gender identity. Need marriage or relationship help? Want to find a therapist that has a welcoming and all-embracing approach that is open to all all spiritual paths and beliefs? Well, if you live in California, I suggest you consider obtaining the services of Alexander Yu, Marriage and Family Therapist, California License Number 102886. Alexander can meet all your needs and can be reached by calling or texting 323-834-9828 or by email at therapy at alexanderyoo.com. Alexander Yu, holistic therapy with a welcoming and all-embracing approach. So, I have one more message that's really important to this story it's the other critical marker well there's two more but this is this is a big one uh and i didn't i didn't come across this document myself until 2017 after i published that other book these are the magic decrypts you're going to be talking about right? yes yes i'm going to talk about yes so what i'm about to talk about is first of all roosevelt met with churchill for a secret conference, it was secret at the time, and then, but newsreel footage was shot. There were a lot of newsreel, newsreel movies made for later release and still pictures taken for public release after it was over. But Roosevelt went in Navy cruisers up to the up the coast of Canada to Newfoundland to a place called Argentia. 
it's a, it's a mouthful. It's Placentia Bay near the Argentia base in Newfoundland. And uh, Churchill comes across on the battleship Prince of Wales, which is one of the two battleships, by the way, that fought the Bismarck in May. And of course, the Bismarck blew up to Hood, the biggest ship in the British Navy, before the British Navy finally sank the Bismarck. And the Prince of Wales was seriously damaged, but she had just been repaired. So Churchill comes across the Atlantic on the Prince of Wales. And they meet for four days in August. It's called the Argentia Conference. I write about this a lot in my book. Now, this is important because of the secret promises Roosevelt made to Churchill during this meeting, which none of which the American public knew about. And now all the historians know all about it. But nobody knew at the time except Roosevelt and the handful of people he chose to tell afterwards. So after he comes back from the conference, and after Churchill goes home from the conference, they both read the most important magic message they ever read, which I'll get to in just a second. But first, we have to talk about what did they talk about at the conference? Well, the first thing is Churchill wanted Roosevelt to warn off Japan and threaten them with war, threaten Japan with war with the United States, if they attack British colonies like Malaya and Singapore. And Roosevelt said, no, 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 I'm not thinking about war with Japan right now. I'm just going to baby them along like I have been. And he says, uh, for the time being, I'm just going to baby them along. Uh, I'll send them some kind of warning, but it's not, I'm not going to threaten them with war. I'm concerned that my primary concern is fighting Hitler. Roosevelt, okay, I haven't said this yet. Roosevelt really wanted to fight Nazi Germany. There's no doubt about it. Any historian will tell you that now. And if you study what happened at this conference in August 41 with Churchill, and after that, you'll understand that. So he tells Churchill in secret at the conference, I cannot declare war against Germany, but I can wage war. So here's what he tells Churchill. He says that there was a debate on a war resolution. If I introduced a war resolution to Congress, there'd be a three-month debate. And even at, you know, the implication was, even at the end of the debate, even if I won the debate, we'd have a divided country at the end of it. You don't want to go into a world war with a divided country. Look what happened to us in Vietnam. We had a divided country, and, and it was a disaster for this country. So Roosevelt told Churchill, I can't declare war, but I can wage war. So he says, I'm going to start convoying with the US Navy, all of your merchant ships in September. And I'll convoy them all the way to Iceland. That's two thirds of the way across the Atlantic. And then your Navy can pick them up at Iceland and take them the rest of the way. Well, that was really good news to Churchill and the British. And then Roosevelt said, if the Germans don't like it, the convoying of your merchant ships, they can attack US forces. He says, I'm going to become more and more provocative in the Atlantic with the US Navy. And he says, in the hopes that there will be an incident. And when he said incident, Churchill knew what he meant, a casus belli, an incident upon which you can base a declaration of war. So he not only was gonna start convoying, he was going to start 
provoking the German Navy and was hoping for an incident. And uh, to make a long story short, later, there were three incidents. I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that later. There were three incidents and the American people didn't care. And that's the second part of the story. So anyway, these are the secret promises Roosevelt makes to Churchill. We know they happened because Churchill went home and told the cabinet and official minutes were made of the cabinet meeting of Churchill speaking verbatim. So they're declassified some years after the war is over, after Roosevelt's dead. And it's really remarkable reading and you can read all that in, in my book. Of course, the public's told nothing of this. They're just told that we met to discuss how to make Lend-Lease work better and to discuss what kind of world we want after Nazi Germany is defeated in the war. So that was all it was, was an intent that Germany should lose. And what kind of world do we want after World War II is over, after the European war is over? We want a world where there's free trade and self-determination of peoples. He made the British sign off on those things, and they hated them. The British were colonialists. They believed in mercantilism. They didn't believe in free trade, and they, and they didn't believe in self-determination. They had colonies all over the world. He made them sign off on the Atlantic Charter so he would have a propaganda document to show to the American people after the conference so the American people wouldn't get nervous and say, oh, I bet you committed us to war, you know? No, no, this is all we talked about. So- And I, both... I was just gonna add, the, the other part to this is, you know, you have, in addition to like the America first isolationism, you also have, uh, you know, elements of, you know, the, the anti-FDR sort of right wing claiming uh, that, that, you know, FDR is, uh, you know, in with the Soviets or that or the, he's a commie. So you have all these people attacking yeah. FDR yeah. at the time. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely correct. And uh, of course, that continued after Yalta and after the war. And uh, I think they're unfair criticisms. But anyway, that was out there then. And it's actually still out there now with the right wing. So uh, Churchill and Roosevelt go home from the historic conference. And the public sees the wonderful newsreels of them holding the church parade, it was called, a joint church service on the fantail on the stern deck of the Prince of Wales, where they, Churchill used Roosevelt's three favorite hymns. He was a very good manipulator, Churchill. He's also an emotional guy. He sat there and cried during the singing of the hymns. And if you look at Roosevelt's face in the pictures, he looks very stern. I think he was on the verge of losing it. So it was, uh, oh God, our help in ages past and onward Christian soldiers. And one other one I can't remember right now. And so this is all in the newsreels. It's very impressive. And uh, so they both go home from the conference, which on the surface is just a propaganda act to show that we're united in cause with these people, even though we're not in the war. It was really much more than that because of the secret promises Roosevelt made. So they both go home and they're both presented with a magic decrypt, the Japanese purple code, the magic messages. And it's the most remarkable thing. It's blessedly short. I, I got it from the British National Archives in 2017. 
And I'm going to read it to you. It's short enough I can read it to you. First, and this is a real Rosetta Stone within the story this you're telling. Yes. This is the Rosetta Stone. Uh, so let me read this message. Now, this crucial telegram was sent from the Japanese ambassador in Berlin to the foreign ministry in Tokyo. So it's Japanese to Japanese. From Baron Oshima in Berlin to the Japanese foreign minister, what we would call the Secretary of State. And he has just met with an SS general named Sepp Dietrich. Now, who this guy is turns out to be real important because Sepp Dietrich was one of Hitler's confidants. He was one of the early fighters in the Nazi party. He was originally Hitler's driver in the 1920s. Can you believe it? And then he became the head of the SS bodyguard later in the 1920s. And then he became an SS general. The SS had some combat divisions called the Waffen SS. So he was actually part of the invasion of the, the West in 1940. And later he, he fought in the Battle of the Bulge. But anyway, so he's an SS general at the time that he meets with the Japanese ambassador. And I'm gonna read you what this intercepted decoded telegram said, and it's on, the, it's on the last page of my book. I reproduced it in facsimile in my book, and I'll send you the color version of it, uh, JG, so you can put it up online. So here's the telegram, 15 August, 1941. And the Japanese ambassador says this to Tokyo, when seeing Dietrich on the 9th on other business, he told me he had been at general headquarters until the previous day, and he had just returned to Berlin. While talking about the question of America, he said that Hitler had declared that in the event of a collision between Japan and the United States, Germany would at once open hostilities with America. I repeat, while talking about the question of America, he said that Hitler had declared that in the event of a collision between Japan and the United States, Germany would at once open hostilities with America. In view of the fact that this talk with Dietrich was entirely fortuitous, it is difficult to do other than accept this statement at its face value. So this was decoded by the Americans, decrypted on the same day, 15 August. Now, Roosevelt couldn't see it until he got back to Washington on the 17th. So the only difference in the wording is in the American version, I just read you the British decryption. In the American version, it's, it's even more specific. It says, Hitler had said that if a clash occurs by any chance between Japan and the United States, Germany will at once open war against the United States. So if there's a clash by any chance, in other words, for any reason, and no matter who started, Hitler's saying, I'll make war on America. That's how pissed off Hitler is by this time with Roosevelt scolding and his speech making against Germany and his uh, Lend-Lease program. So the British document with the version, which I published in my book, has some marginalia on it. And uh, it wasn't uh, decrypted and typed up until August 23rd. And so Churchill writes on it in red ink, and this is in my book, Churchill writes, it's sent over to him by Bletchley Park by the, the codebreakers at Bletchley Park, military and diplomatic codebreakers, because we had given the British two of the purple machines. Later, we gave them a third one. 
Instead of sending it to Pearl Harbor, we gave him a third machine. <laughs> okay. So Churchill writes, in view of the fact that the Americans themselves gave us the key to the Japanese messages, it seems probable the president knows this already. But anyhow, it is very desirable he did know it. Propose me action, please. So the very next day, the head of uh, MI6, the head of all of his code breakers, writes back and says, the Americans have had this message. And it's dated the next day, August 24th. So Churchill knows how important this is. And he's so concerned that Roosevelt sees this that he asked, would you please confirm the Americans have seen this? And so it was confirmed. So consider what this means. Roosevelt's primary goal is to get into the war against Nazi Germany. He's so concerned about doing this now. He's so intent upon it that he's going to attack German U-boats in the Atlantic. He's going to convoy British merchant ships, attack U-boats, uh, tell the British where the U-boats are, even if they're 300 miles away, help the British sink the U-boats. And his statement to Churchill was, if the Germans don't like it, they can attack us. They can attack U.S. forces. So he's so concerned that he wanted an incident upon which he could base a declaration of war. So this is hip pocket information for Roosevelt, the chess player, that tells him that, hey, if I can't get into the war the way I want to through the front door, if I, if I can't get Hitler to declare war on me and on the United States because of convoying or because of incidents between U.S. ships and U-boats, then I can fall back on this decrypted diplomatic message I have, which says, if we have any kind of military conflict with Japan, Hitler's going to declare war in the United States, and that'll solve my problem. But he preferred to go in through the front door. That's what he told Churchill at Argentia. And of course, that makes sense. He didn't like what the Japanese were doing in East Asia, but Hitler was the main enemy, the one with the huge industrial base and the war fighting ability. So what happened was, there were three incidents in the Atlantic. There were three torpedo attacks on American destroyers, the USS Greer on December 4th, excuse me, September 4th, both torpedoes missed, but Roosevelt made a big deal about it. They fired on an American ship. They did. Another one on October 17th, USS Kearney was hit by a torpedo, which exploded and the ship almost sank. It uh, limped back to Iceland barely made it back to port. Roosevelt made a real big deal about that. He made a speech about the Greer incident. He made another speech about the torpedoing of the Kearney. So the first speech was on December 11th about the attack on the Greer, and he, he tried to stir up a war fever. And he used that incident to justify the convoying of British merchant ships. He hadn't told the American people that he made that promise. He used that attack as the excuse to defend all ships of all nations anywhere on the high seas from Nazi aggression. So that was his excuse to justify convoying, which he'd already decided to do anyway. His Navy Day speech on October 27th, I didn't just give you excerpts, I gave you verbatim the entire speech. He, he was literally over the top with histrionics, trying to stir up a war fever. And it didn't work. The American people weren't ready to go to war with Germany because something happened between one destroyer skipper and one U-boat skipper. So then a third American ship was torpedoed 
on October 31st, USS Reuben James, and it was sunk with great loss of life. And uh, guess what? Roosevelt didn't say a thing in public. He didn't say a damn thing about it. There was no speech, nothing, because he knew it hadn't worked. Going to war through the front door, through an incident that would create a war fever in the US or maybe get Hitler to declare war on us, didn't work. So the story of the month of November is Roosevelt, who had already gone from deterrence to provocation against Germany, you see, when he decided to convoy the British ships and attack U-boats and have an undeclared war in the Atlantic in the hopes of an incident, that was him shifting from deterrence to provocation in the Atlantic. So he shifted from deterrence to provocation against Japan in the Pacific in November after going to war with Hitler through the front door hadn't worked. And so what happens is throughout the month of November, the Japanese are desperate to reestablish the flow of oil because uh, they know that they've stockpiled oil for two years, but they know that they've only got about enough oil for their Navy to run for about two years saved up. And that's after stockpiling oil for like four or five years. And if they went to war, they'd only have enough oil for about one year, a year or a year and a half at the most. And so with the oil embargo in place since July 26th, they knew that time was against them. So their diplomats were desperate to try to get uh, their diplomats in Washington to get the oil embargo lifted, reach some kind of accommodation with the Americans. And of course, the main reason that we wouldn't reach an accommodation with them was uh, there was a lot of support in America for the Chinese. I mean, there was a big China lobby in the U.S. and a lot of U.S. missionaries in China, and uh, but mostly a big Chinese lobby and an effective one. And uh, to have suddenly backed off of this funds freeze would have looked like appeasement. And of course, you know, because of Munich in 1938, that was appeasement and it didn't work. And Hitler became more and more emboldened because of appeasement. So Roosevelt wasn't about to turn the oil back on because it would have looked like appeasement. And uh, so the Japanese even send a separate special negotiator to Washington to help with the ambassador. Now, neither one of these two high-level diplomats in Washington, neither one of them know about the Pearl Harbor attack, but they know that war may be close and that they're getting desperate in Tokyo. They knew that. There was a lot of timeline pressure on them to reach in a deal with the Americans. So talks went on throughout the month of November. And in this venue, we have to keep that short, but suffice it to say that by November 25th, Roosevelt and his Secretary of State, the moralistic, rigid Cordell Hull, had come up with what they called a modus vivendi. A modus vivendi is it's Latin for a way of living together. And it's a word that diplomats use to say, well, it's a way we can get along. So it was like going to be a temporary arrangement that would postpone war with Japan for at least three months. Roosevelt and this, wanted this a is the whole note that we're talking about, right? Well, it's before the whole note. 
okay, uh, this okay. is this was uh, there was going to be a temporary accommodation with Japan that would have given them some oil again, some oil, not a lot, if they would withdraw from southern French Indochina. So if the deal was, if you will withdraw your forces from South Vietnam, which you took over in July, and the whole world considered a terribly aggressive act, you know, the precursor to, to war in Southeast Asia, South Asia. If you'll withdraw your forces from Southeast Asia, then we'll give you some oil for peacetime use. There are other details, but this was the essentials and some rice, believe it or not. These, and we'll buy some of your silk again. So this was the essentials of the modus vivendi that was almost done. It was almost a done deal. And Roosevelt had even gotten his cabinet to agree to it. He didn't have to. I mean, he's in charge of foreign policy, but he and the Secretary of State, but they even blessed it. And something happened overnight by the morning of November 26th that made Roosevelt literally flip American foreign policy on its head. And he reversed his position abandoned the temporary accommodation with Japan that they'd been working for the entire month of November, and instead gave them an ultimatum, a diplomatic set of conditions for restoring trade that he knew they couldn't refuse. So that ultimatum was called the Hall Note. So there was a long part one uh, a preamble which talked about the history, the nine-month history of negotiations with the U.S., which were attempting to resolve, uh, what are you going to do about the China war? What are you going to do about expansion in the South? And then there, were, there was part two, which were a set of 10 very uh, strict conditions, which became known as the Hull Note. Secretary Hull was Secretary of State. And uh, the, this note was written by a, a, a zealot, a friend of China, in the uh, Treasury Department, Harry Dexter White, and it had been forwarded to Roosevelt, and he had ignored it. He'd sat on it for eight days or something. He didn't pay any attention to it because instead of a temporary accommodation with Japan, it was an ultimatum. So the Hall note, which Roosevelt calls in Cordell Hall the morning of the 26th, and this is the old man, Secretary of State, who has been working on this temporary accommodation for a week. He's been negotiating with Japan for nine months. He was desperately afraid of war. He didn't want a war with Japan, which is why he didn't want an oil embargo. He had been against that. So he calls Hall over to the White House, tells him to issue this instead, and hands him the document. Hall goes back to his office, and 15 minutes later, he says to one of his aides, those men over there at the White House do not understand what they are doing. You cannot give an ultimatum to a proud people. They will go to war against us. That's what Cordell Hull said. So he was the reluctant executor of a presidential order, which was contrary to everything he had been working for the previous week and the previous nine months, which was some kind of accommodation that would prevent war in the Far East. So the question then for me is, what leads to that sort of flip yeah. that FDR does? Yeah. And it's another code-breaking story, and it's a fascinating one. And uh, that is called the code-breaking surrounding the JN25 code. So 
Uh, the JN-25 code was the Japanese Navy's fleet operating code. Everything from get underway tomorrow and proceed to this port to form a task force consisting of these units, uh, go attack this objective, uh, go and refuel at this location, uh, come back to this port for overhaul, you know, you name it. The operational code. We had our first successes as a nation in beginning to break that code the same month that we broke MAGIC, which was September 1940. But it was much harder to break JN25. It was a book code. And it then, was a basic code book, like a dictionary. So the diplomatic code was done by machine. It was machine encrypted by electronic uh, stepping switches, like you find in a telephone exchange. It was uh, early electronics. And these mathematicians uh, figured that out. And they had the US Navy build a, a giant machine over six feet long, full of bundles of tiny wires and stepping switches. I've seen the actual thing in the Cryptologic Museum outside Fort Meade in Washington. The magic machine in the movie, Tora Tora Tora, which is in many ways is a very uh, good movie. Uh, they show a little tiny box, you know, about one and a half feet by one foot. Uh, no, the real magic machine was over six feet long. Uh, it was full of wire bundles. It's very complicated. And we ended up, all of our industrial might, we could only build eight of those. We only built eight. And we built hundreds of other kinds of coding machines. But uh, so anyway, that was machine encrypted stuff, the diplomacy. The Japanese Navy code was a book code, which had a basic code book with about 50,000 words in it. And each word uh, for use of coding in a message had a five-digit number, like 00001 or 23478 would represent a word or a phrase or something like that, something with a specific meaning in the code book. And then those numbers, when they were put on a Japanese Navy telegram, were super enciphered by additive tables. So to keep it simple, I'll just say there was a second book, which the Japanese would change uh, every six months or so called additive tables. And they were a book of padding of nothing but numbers, which you would add to the code book numbers. So if you had a code book, a code that for 00025, which meant get underway, tells the ship to get underway, go to sea you would use that in your message and then you would go to the additive table and pull out the additive numbers for that day because it was a 300 page book and you would add the additive code for example 86868 to the 00025 and you'd come up with a totally new number to which the japanese thought would totally disguise what was in their message and their language is so complex anyway their written language is the most complex written language in the world. They use Chinese characters with different pronunciation than Chinese, Japanese pronunciation, and added to it are two phonetic languages. So uh, two phonetic alphabets, excuse me. So the Japanese thought their codes couldn't be broken. And we began to figure out in September 1940 how to break this JN25 code. But it was very time consuming and very slow and required a lot of human resources. You couldn't break that code with the machine. It was not machine encrypted or broken. It had to be done by hand. So most of the US 
code-breaking abilities in Washington were devoted to purple, to the diplomatic messages, which they received every single day to and from Tokyo all over the world. And there were other lower level diplomatic codes that the people in Washington were trying to break also. But we're talking about just a few handfuls of people, 30, 40 people. And most of them were devoted to magic. So uh, by the time November 1941 rolls around, we know now there have been enough documents grudgingly released by the British National Archives over the years. They've been very stingy about it, but they gradually released enough documents that we know they were more than a year ahead of us in capabilities in breaking the Japanese Navy's code, the JN-25 code. They were more than a year ahead of us in ability. And they had like 300 people at Bletchley Park devoted to breaking the Japanese code. They had a unit in Singapore called the Far East Combined Bureau, which were the experts at breaking the Japanese naval code. So they sent their expert from Bletchley Park out to Singapore at the end of uh, 1939. He took all of his data with him. He stayed there and uh, they just got better and better at it in Singapore. And we know that the British claim to have gotten significant information about the Japanese Navy in November of 1941. Significant information, but they still won't tell us what it was. So what changed Roosevelt's mind overnight to abandon tempor temporary accommodation with Japan, which would have delayed war at least three months in the Pacific, would have given them a little bit of oil, a little bit of rice in exchange for them pulling out of South Vietnam. What changed his mind overnight? I'm going to read you the message that I think it was. Admiral Yamamoto, as most of you might know, was the Japanese admiral who was in charge of the combined fleet, the Japanese fleet. He was the champion of the Pearl Harbor attack. Almost nobody else in the Japanese command structure wanted to do that. The Japanese Navy imperial staff, Japanese Navy general staff did not want to attack Pearl Harbor. They were solely focused on the southern operations, taking Malaya, going to Thailand, taking the Dutch East Indies. He finally threatened to resign if they didn't adopt his plan. So in October, he rammed it through and got the Navy leadership to approve it. So everybody on the combined fleet staff that had been working on this attack since August knew all about it. I mean, they had been wargaming it on tabletop war games in both September and October. They knew what the plan was, and they also knew what the Japanese diplomatic plan was. So the, I said earlier, the Japanese decided to go to war in, on September 6th, but would continue negotiations in the meantime. And so the plan was, well, if we can't get the oil turned back on by the middle of October through negotiations, we'll then go to war with America. So they said, we'll go on the December, September 6th, they said, we'll go to war and we'll give the diplomats till the middle of October to make things okay with the oil. And if they don't, we'll go to war. So in the middle of October, it was clear that negotiations with America were going nowhere. So uh, the cabinet resigned. And the emperor of Japan is nervous about this big war with America, which he, he knows they can't win a long war. Yamamoto knew they couldn't win a long war. They could only win a, maybe a short war. If they could beat the hell out of, out of us for about a year and get us to sign a peace after that and cut a deal with them. 
So uh, emperor appoints a new prime minister. Unfortunately, he appoints the wrong guy, an army zealot named Tojo, Hideki Tojo, who had been a proponent of war in China for four years and was against any withdrawal from China whatsoever. In fact, he was against any withdrawal from anywhere whatsoever. So he tells Tojo, go back to blank paper, uh, start over. The diplomats will work very hard and we're gonna meet again uh, in November, everybody, the national leadership and decide whether we're really gonna do this war with the West. So on November 5th, the imperial structure, the liaison conferences between the civilian government and the military and the cabinet and the emperor have all decided again to do the same thing they decided on September 6th. We're going to go to war with America and Great Britain and the Dutch East Indies unless we can achieve a, achieve a last minute diplomatic settlement. And they gave the uh, diplomats a deadline, which was the very last minute in November. In other words, if by 0001 minutes on December 1st, if by then there was no deal with the United States to turn the oil back on and unfreeze assets, Japan was really going to go to war, which they had already decided twice they would do in September and November. So Roosevelt changes his mind. He flips on November 26th. What caused him to flip? None of the mainstream historians, and this is very important, have provided any satisfactory explanation for why Roosevelt flipped American foreign policy on its head overnight and changed from temporary accommodation on the one hand to a slap in the face ultimatum on the other. Nobody's been able to explain it. Cordell Hall lied in his memoirs and said it was his idea. Well, we know that's a lie because we know what he told his aide when he came back from the White House that morning, that those men in the White House don't understand what they're doing. Right, if right. He was saying, uh, what, this yeah. is crazy. This is madness. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So my contention is that the British codebreakers, who were really, really good at what they're doing, they were doing at that time, well ahead of the Americans, decoded the Pearl Harbor attack order. And the Churchill sent it on to Roosevelt, and Roosevelt received it the morning of the 26th. So I'm going to read the attack order. And, and, and it's important you. to just reiterate, the British were like a year ahead of us in the code breaking, but, but go yes. on. They were a year ahead of us, and Churchill and the British were the recipients of all of our national largesse, all of our wealth, all of the money we were spending to build them munitions and merchant ships. The Lund lease was a giveaway which quite frankly was preventing our armed forces from rearming as fast as we wanted to. And so was he gonna withhold knowledge of something like that from us? No way. If he had withheld knowledge of something like that from us, it would have been the kiss of death if Roosevelt ever found out. So he would have felt obligated to share that with us, particularly in light of the fact that both he and Roosevelt knew about Hitler's inner intentions, remember? Hitler's promise is what some authors call it from August. Uh, but it wasn't a promise to the Japanese ambassador. It was more important than, than something you would tell a diplomat. It was a promise he made to a member of his inner circle at the Wolfslayer headquarters at Rastenburg in East Prussia, is that if there's a collision between Japan and America, I'll, wake, I'll make war on America. That's the person he would trust with Sepp Dietrich. 
So they knew about this from their magic decrypt in August, that if, if the U.S. goes to war with Japan for any reason, Hitler will make war on the United States. So, And then there's something you wanted mind. to read. Yes. So keep that in mind while I read you the Yamamoto attack order. Here we go. The date is crucial. It's 22 November. Yeah, I know. That's a big date in the Kennedy assassination, too. It's just a coincidence. But there it is. 22 November. From Admiral Yamamoto, Commander-in-Chief Combined Fleet, to the 1st Air Fleet. Now, the 1st Air Fleet is Japan's six large aircraft carriers. They called it Kido Butai. That means mobile striking force. There's six large aircraft carriers. Nobody in the world had ever operated six aircraft carriers at the same time together, but they had figured out how to do that in 1941. They had a lethal bludgeon to use against someone else that nobody else knew about. Those ships had already rehearsed the attack and rendezvoused up north at a remote site called Hitokapu Bay, uh, north of uh, Hokkaido in the Kurile Islands. And he sent this by radio to those ships who had already rendezvoused at that remote site. And here's what it says. The task force, keeping its movement strictly secret and maintaining close guard against submarines and aircraft, shall advance into Hawaiian waters. And upon the very opening of hostilities, shall attack the main force of the United States fleet in Hawaii and deal it a mortal blow. And he goes on at the end to say, we'll give you the exact date of the attack later. At the end, it says, should the negotiations with the United States prove successful, the task force shall hold itself in readiness forthwith to return and reassemble. That's nice language for if the negotiations with America are successful, you'll turn around and come home and you will not attack Pearl Harbor. Now, we know about this message, not from American archives, because it's not in the American code-breaking archives, which were only supposedly broken and decrypted in 1945 and 46. I don't believe that. That would have happened right after the attack. But anyway, the British also, they refused to release any JN-25 messages whatsoever from before the war started. They won't do it. I think they're afraid of embarrassing their transatlantic partner. So what happened was in 1946, as the Pearl Harbor congressional investigations, which were massive, were wrapping up, the Navy wrote a top secret ultra report on pre-Pearl Harbor Japanese messages to the chief of naval operations, which nobody saw until 1991. Now, the chief of naval operations in 1946 was Chester Nimitz, who'd been promoted, no longer commander-in-chief Pacific. He was now the head of the Navy. He got this report, and I think it was written in case the Congress became aware of JN-25 code breaking, because they weren't aware of it. All they were aware of was magic. All they could focus on was the diplomatic code break. But the diplomatic codes didn't have anything of military value in them, only diplomatic intention. So when these decrypted 
JN-25 Japanese Navy pre-Pearl Harbor messages were released in 1991. This report was released. It said, listen to what it said. American intercept operators. I'm not talking about code breakers. I'm talking about radio men with earphones on like you have on, JG, sitting at Japanese typewriters, Japanese kanji typewriters for Japanese Morse code, intercepted, just copied off the airwaves, 26,500 Japanese Navy messages between September of 1941 and December 7th. 26,500. We were intercepting everything as far as you can determine. And so this report in 46, which was top secret ultra said, of those we thought about 2000 were of great interest. And of those, we finally decrypted them, decoded them in 1945 and 46, if you believe that, 188 of them, 188 of them, if they had all been decoded before the Pearl Harbor attack, you know, would have revealed the attack was coming. But there was no single smoking gun. So an NSA historian named Frederick Parker has studied the released 1946 report, which was released in 91, and he's written a long monograph called Pearl Harbor Revisited, and he has studied the 188 messages that were in the 1946 report, and he said, yes, it's true. If all 188 messages had been decoded, we would have known this thing was happening. But there was no single message that was a smoking gun. But here's the problem. Would we, so would we have known the exact date then, too, or... Or just that we would know generally yes. that it's yes, okay. yes, okay. because one of the 188 messages was the famous climb mountain Itaka message, uh, which was the go code. It was actually like, if you want to call it that, the last of the 188 messages. Mount Niitaka was Niitakayama was the tallest mountain in Japan. It was in Formosa, which was then Japanese territory, and uh, to climb it was to accomplish the most difficult feat. So the go code said. Climb Mount Niitaka December 8th. Repeat, climb Mount Niitaka December 8th. So the attack was on, everything was in Tokyo time. So December 7th, Hawaii time, and US mainland was December 8th, Tokyo time. So it said, perform the most difficult feat, 12-8. And it was sent to the entire fleet, and that was intercepted and decoded, and decoded in 45 and 6, they admitted to that. So here's the problem. The message I just read to you, the attack order for Pearl Harbor, and a message three days later, which was even more damning in a way, uh, on November 25th, Yamamoto sent a message which told the first air fleet up north, it said, get underway from Hitokapu Bay, like right now, get underway, assemble at this longitude and latitude, and refuel en route your destination. And the refueling point was not on the road to Southeast Asia. It was in the middle of the North Pacific. <laughs> it's, so it said, it said where they should get underway from, get underway from Hitokapu Bay. And in other words, go east and refuel at this position about halfway to Hawaii. That's really damning. But see, that didn't go out till November 25th. And then they sailed on the 26th. So here's what happened. In 1946, the U.S. published two reports, which has the Yamamoto attack order and the sailing order, 
from Yamamoto in those reports. One is called uh, a public, it's a publication called Campaigns of the Pacific War. I've seen it myself in the Library of Congress. I then ordered a used copy. It was so important to me. The Army Bombardment Survey interrogated all of these surviving Japanese naval officers as soon as they surrendered. They interrogated them in September and October, right away. And these guys all talked about these messages, the 22 November attack order, recalled its wording. Some of them were recipients of that message. No wonder they recalled the wording. One of them was Mitsuo Fuchida, who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. He would have received it in Hitokapu Bay. The other one was the operations officer on the Imperial, Stat Imperial Japanese Navy general staff. So these guys recalled all these messages verbatim. And the Congress, as I said, conducted a big investigation. So the Congress said in its report, really interesting, they said, well, the Army initially believed that the Pearl Harbor attack order, the one I just read to you, that used the word Hawaii twice and said, destroy the US fleet, give it a moral blow in Hawaii. The Army interrogators first thought that was sent on November 25th. And that's what they put in their 1946 book. But the congressional report published in 1946, which is like 39 volumes, says that was an error. And we determined subsequently that the transmission date of that message was November 22nd. And that's when I said, aha, that's it. That's it. Because you couldn't decode JN25 messages extremely quickly. It took some time. It took a handful of hours, sometimes half a day to do a complex JN25 message. And then the procedure would have been for a message of that importance for the code breakers at the Far East Combined Bureau in Singapore, the Brits, to have sent the original message and their decryption of it to Bletchley Park, where most of the code breakers were for double checking. And those people back there would have double checked it. They would have uh, double checked the original Japanese code and then broken it themselves. And, and then they would have forwarded it to Churchill. And so if that went out the 22nd, Churchill had time to receive it, consider it and send it on to Roosevelt for Roosevelt's receipt by the morning of the 26th. And I'm telling you, there's evidence that on the next day, on November 27th, he used his son to drive up to New York City and use the British purchasing mission in Rockefeller Plaza, which was ca called British Supply Coordination, BSC, but it was really the MI6 office. It was the British spy and propaganda office in America trying to get us into the war. And his son, James, went up there with what was obviously a reply to send by secret means, by underwater cable, back to Churchill through Bletchley Park. And we know it was in that message because the message was, quote, negotiations are off. Services expect action within two weeks, end quote. Negotiations off, services expect action within two weeks. There's an historian I respect very much, John Costello, wrote a book called Days of Infamy in 1994. And he's positive that that message sent back through the son of Roosevelt, through this secret means, 
was a reply to an earlier incoming message. And I agree with him. And so I've deduced that the incoming message almost certainly had to be the Yamamoto attack order of 20 to November. It would have given Far East Combined Bureau time to decode it and then send it to Bletchley Park, time to send it to Churchill, and time for Churchill to get it to FDR so that his son could pick it up probably the evening before and drive it back from New York City and deliver it to Roosevelt the morning of the 26th, early the morning of the 26th, because he surely flipped our foreign policy on its head. And it's the only explanation that makes sense. So to keep a very long story short, congressional testimony of both George Marshall, Chief of Staff of the Army, and uh, Admiral Stark, Chief of Naval Operations at the time, admit there was a key communication that came in on November 26th. They admitted. They admitted it under oath. And so one of the questions from Congress to General Marshall was, well, why did the Army send out its war warning? Warning the Pearl Harbor commanders and, and General MacArthur in the Philippines of war on November 27th. And he says, well, I rather think it was something that came in on the 26th. <laughs> so poor Admiral Kimmel, who was in charge of the Pacific Fleet at the time of the attack, was allowed to interrogate Admiral Stark, his former friend, former friend, in 1944, when Stark was before the Naval Court of Inquiry. There were all kinds of Pearl Harbor investigations, uh, ultimately nine of them. And uh, he was allowed to interrogate him, and he asked Stark something that he knew from the Army. So Kimmel had learned from the Army Pearl Harbor Board, also in 1944, that the O&I had warned, Office of Naval Intelligence had warned the Army that we had foreign intelligence, that the Japanese were going to attack us that they were going to attack us from an undisclosed port and that they were going to attack us in the near future. And so he was allowed to ask Stark the question under oath. And Kimmel said, did you receive from the Office of Naval Intelligence, Foreign Intelligence, that the Japanese were going to attack the United States from an unknown port? Did you receive intelligence like that on the 26th of November? <laughs> And Admiral Stark claimed executive privilege and said, I'm exempt from disclosing national secrets. It would not be in the public interest. And the Naval Court of Inquiry allowed him to get away with that. So whereas poor Admiral Kimmel was allowed to ask Stark what came in on the 26th, Stark wasn't forced to answer the question. So uh, because- And, and Kimmel, I was going to say real quick, Admiral Kimmel basically takes like the- he, he's disgraced by all this in a way. He takes the oh, yeah. blame for it. He's the fall yeah. guy. Yeah, the first uh, Pearl Harbor investigation was an informal visit by Secretary of the Navy Knox, who flew in and flew out after just a couple of days, and wrote a report for Roosevelt. And then the next investigation was the Roberts Commission, which was headed by Supreme Court Justice Roberts. And uh, it was basically a whitewash, and it absolved anybody in Washington of any wrongdoing. And it uh, basically accused, it's it not basically, it accused Admiral Kimmel, Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, and Admiral, excuse me, General uh, Short, head of the Army Detachment, accused them of dereliction of duty and made them the scapegoats. And so that's what Kimmel 
was fighting throughout the war was disgrace. And, uh, you know, yes, I know I'm accountable and responsible as the commander, but I wasn't given crucial information. And as it uh, turned out, he was never given a purple machine. MacArthur had a purple machine in the Philippines, but Kimmel was denied one. And he was denied other information too, critical information. So this is one hell of a detective story. And I think I've come up with the last piece. The answer has been hiding in plain sight. If you have those two 1946 reports, we know those Japanese messages were sent. Not only that, but Admiral Nagumo, who's in charge of the striking force, the Pearl Harbor Kido Butai striking force, he issued his op orders on November 23rd. Well, that, that fits like a, a dovetail glove. You can't write your op order until you receive the attack order first from Yamamoto. And that was sent the 22nd. So the fact that Nagumo wrote his op orders and issued them the 23rd to the ships in the harbor up north proves that he got the attack order the day before on November 22nd. And that gave codebreakers time enough to do this work. So, you know, after the war, the father of Navy cryptography, an honorable man, Captain Lawrence Safford, wrote in two different letters to people that the codebreakers in Washington essentially had, they had JN-25 Japanese Navy code broken to a readable extent by early December, 1941. But the problem was they were reading traffic that was a month old. They were reading messages that had gone from Hawaii to California, either by the Pan Am Clipper, which it, you know, it only flew once a week. So you had to wait three or four days for it to take off or by ship when the Clipper would break down and then by train or plane across the country. So these messages that they could break when they decided to devote the necessary personnel resources were a month old. So I think the British code breakers are the key. My first book from 2017, I spent about 50 pages writing in detail uh, the proofs for how the British were more than a year ahead of us in capability breaking the Japanese Navy code. And their anecdotal accounts that, hey, we knew this was coming and we warned Churchill and we warned London and we told them all about this and something bloody well went wrong because the Americans shouldn't have been surprised. So I couldn't put that in this second book without making it too long and too cumbersome. But if you want to read the details of proving that they were that far ahead of us, you can go back and read my earlier work. But it's a fact. And the point to remember is that Roosevelt's overriding foreign policy goal was to fight Nazi Germany and to persuade the American people to eventually get into the war. And when but, he was not successful, he tried to stimulate incidents in the North Atlantic that would cause a war fever. And when the incidents occurred, they didn't work. So then he fell back, I think, on the fallback position, which was the backdoor approach. So I guess that, that just leaves one question for me. If there was foreknowledge that the Japanese were coming to do an attack, why couldn't you intercept the attack and still, still declare war? Great. I love your question. Why wouldn't you want to and why couldn't you? Well, first of all, the, uh, it's apparent that from diary entries of the Dutch naval attaché, Captain Raneft, 
which he published in 1952. He published his eight-year-long diary of his time in the United States, his naval attaché. He was told by O&I that there were two Japanese carriers. They didn't know there were six. This is called the fog of war. They had plotted on a chart two Japanese carriers coming east across the North Pacific. And so they showed him this chart on two occasions, on December 2nd and December 6th. So that's a lot different than six aircraft carriers. And at the time, Pearl Harbor was thought by literally almost everyone in the Navy, 99.9% .9 of everyone in the Navy to be too shallow for aerial torpedoes to be dropped because normally aerial torpedoes would drop to a depth of 75 feet or greater before they came up to their assigned depth and leveled off. They would go too deep and get stuck in the mud. And Pearl was only like 45 feet deep, maximum 40 to 45 feet deep. And the armored decks of battleships had enough armor on them that the kinds of bombs carried by carrier aircraft weren't strong enough to punch through the armored decks of battleships. So what the United States didn't know, what O&I didn't know, and what Roosevelt didn't know was that the Japanese had taken 16-inch battleship shells, the largest size battleship shell made in the world, and converted them into special bombs for dropping on battleship armored decks from a height of 10,000 feet. And they, you know, half of their carrier attack planes, so-called attack planes, the Kate, the Kate uh, B-5N uh, attack bomber, half of them carried these huge bombs that were like 1,800 kilograms for dropping through battleship armored decks. But we didn't know about that secret weapon. And we certainly didn't know about their aerial torpedoes, which had had special fins attached to prevent them from going too deep in Pearl Harbor and that their pilots had practiced for months, extremely dangerous and skilled low approaches, very low over the water, 30 feet above the water for dropping these things at a, at a very low height. So they wouldn't go too deep in the shallow waters of Pearl. So I think there was a feeling that even if the Japanese were stupid enough to attack Pearl, it's gonna be a nuisance raid that gee, the ONI says there's only two carriers bombs from dive bombers that can't penetrate battleship armored decks or turrets. We don't care about that. And uh, torpedoes can't be launched in a shallow harbor like that. So there would have been a sense, I think, that for anyone who knew that, well, the most they could do is launch a nuisance raid. And uh, as uh, McCollum said the year before, if Japan commits an overt act of war, so much the better. <laughs> Well, clobber the bastards. This is, this is, this well, is. especially like when we say an overt act of war, you know, we, I, I think the key here is that the three other incidents with Germany that just Americans didn't react to, that wasn't on our soil. They were, you know, they were yeah. overt acts of war by Germany. Right, right. But, but Pearl Harbor, it, I think it hit closer to home for people. And sure. that's why, you know, that, that's what really turned the American public. In the sense that it was an American territory. And we weren't about to give it its independence, not like the Philippines. That's where people, that's where rich people went on vacation on the ocean liner Lurleen and, and on the flying boats. Uh, so th there was a great love for Hawaii. It was considered American soil since 1898. And uh, 
So uh, yes, there was a much stronger identification with what would happen in Hawaii, as opposed to what happened to some destroyer crew out in the North Atlantic, where people had months to get used to the idea. Okay, yeah, okay, we're going to con, we're going to send stuff to Britain. Okay, now we're going to send escorts to help convoy it. Yeah, boy, eventually something's going to happen. But this was just a big shock. Nobody. One thing I didn't mention, which is really important, is that, first of all, if the director of ONI was aware that there were two carriers heading east across the North Pacific and had it on a chart and showed the chart personally, he personally showed the chart. He and McCollum personally showed the chart to Captain Raneft of the Dutch Navy. That's in his diary. Then don't tell me the president didn't know. If you're the o director of ONI and you know something like that, you're not going to withhold it from the president. Give me a break. Not only that, but the Navy codebreakers in Washington, the ones that were decoding messages a month old and long, more than a month old, decoded lower level diplomatic traffic. It wasn't purple. It was lower level stuff, J-19 code, from the Japanese foreign ministry in Tokyo to the Japanese consulate in Honolulu. So there were messages sent out in September, which they decoded in Washington in October, that said to the Japanese consulate in Honolulu, we want weekly reports on the locations of the American fleet in Pearl Harbor. We want to know what their movements are. We want to know exactly where they tie up. And then later, other messages went out and said, well, we especially want to know if one ship is outboard the other ship, and we want reports more often than once a week. Uh, like even ships that haven't moved, even if they didn't get underway. We want very frequent reports. So the Navy headquarters on Constitution Avenue became aware of those, we call them bomb plot messages. The Japanese wanted a bomb plot regularly of where ships were tied up in Pearl Harbor. And uh, the, the Navy leadership that found out about these things refused to share that information with Admiral Kimmel and General Short in Hawaii. So the horse's ass that refused to share it was Admiral Richmond K. Turner, a screamer, one of the real villains of this story, except that would he have the cojones to really make that decision on his own, or was he carrying out presidential policy? Probably the latter. So, you know, he decides not to inform Kimmel of the bomb plot messages. Not only that, uh, one of his associates at Navy headquarters refuses to allow Commander Rochefort, the codebreaker, refuses to allow him to decode this low-level traffic to the Japanese consulate. So there's all kinds of things going on that are they're not they're they're not just evidence of errors of omission. They're errors of commission, which make no sense unless some of these people at a high level. We're carrying out the president's policy, and we're hoping for a casus belli that would get us into the war. And here's the key, with a united people behind the war, not a divided people, a united people. And isolationism literally died overnight on the evening of December 7th. It's a doozy of a story. We spent, I think we've gone uh, almost three hours. I, oh I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate your staying so long for this one. Thank you. Um, in closing, I mean, it's interesting because 
I, I think it's important, you note in the book, you know, this isn't a book claiming that Pearl Harbor was like an inside job. It was ultimately uh, Japan's choice to attack. So I want people to understand what we're saying here. Right. In fact, it was not only Japan's choice to attack Pearl Harbor. The only person in the Japanese Navy that wanted to do it was Admiral Yamamoto, the, the fleet commander, and some of his aviators who believed in it. Uh, the Japanese general staff of the Navy, the Navy general staff, wasn't excited about it at all, and they were afraid they'd lose their big carriers. Uh, but Yamamoto wanted to give the Japanese Navy six months of freedom of action to carry out the Southern operations without U.S. interference. And that's why he thought the American fleet has to be severely damaged, if not destroyed, the day the war starts. And he wanted to break America's will to fight. He wrote that numerous times. And it's amazing he would make that kind of mistake for somebody who was stationed in America on three tours of duty. Studied at Harvard, took a, an admiral all around America for several months on another occasion, and then served as the naval attache in Washington. But that was his blind spot. It was, it was a, psychologically, it was a tremendous mistake. So Roosevelt, I believe, didn't find out about this specific Pearl Harbor attack until the last minute, November 26th. And so then it becomes, does the end justify the means? Now, each member of your audience and each reader, I really, truly do invite people to read this book. It's very readable, I believe. Consider that question for yourself after you read the book. But Roosevelt was playing chess on the world stage, and his concern was defeating Nazi Germany. And uh, he knew because of Hitler's promises to his confidants through the magic decrypts that Hitler would declare war on us if, if Japan got into a scrape with us, or we got into a scrape at Japan. So it's clear he preferred going in through the front door, but the front door didn't work. The incidents in the Atlantic in October, excuse me, September and October, didn't work. They didn't create a war fever. And uh, so I think Roosevelt had this handed to him on a platter at a time when he didn't know what to do, when he was about to cut a deal for temporary accommodation, which somebody could have almost called appeasement. There were some people afraid that if we did a, a modus vivendi with Japan and turned on some of the oil again, that, that he might be accused of appeasement. So he changed his mind overnight rather dramatically. And uh, that's the, this is the only explanation, I think, and the best explanation. It's not only the best one, it's the only one that makes sense to me, is that Churchill sent him the Pearl Harbor attack order, which we know was sent from two 1946 reports. We also know there was a massive cover-up following the Pearl Harbor attack within the Navy. All kinds of stuff was destroyed. Uh, I documented that in my other book. And so I figured there was an immediate post-Pearl Harbor cover-up of the most damning material. That's why the 188 messages that were sent to the CNO, to Nimitz in 46, none of them alone is a smoking gun. If you consider them in, in the aggregate, a detective would be able to put together the attack. The fact that there were special torpedoes developed, there were special bombs, that the fleet assembled at a very remote northern port, uh, blah, 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 the uh, climb Mount Nitaka on December 8th. 
But I think by 1945 and six, those few messages, those three messages that I view as smoking guns, and I talk about them in the book, uh, had been destroyed long since and were no longer in the American archives. But the Japanese sure as hell told us about them in 1945. They told the interrogators in September and October, and the content of those messages made their way into the Army publication, Campaigns of the Pacific War, and the Congressional Report, which even corrected the date of transmission to November 22nd. So the British office in New York City, the propaganda and supply office, that's known to have been a secret conduit between Churchill and Roosevelt when they didn't want things to be on the record when they didn't want records to be in the archives of the State Department or the White House. And so a former employee of the British office wrote a book after the war based on an internal history written by the Brits in 1943. So he took an internal document, wrote a book, which he published after the war, and it included that Roosevelt's son coming back on November 27th with the secret message for Churchill through the secret underwater cable to Bletchley Park saying, negotiations off. Services expect action within two weeks. That verbiage begs an explanation. What stimulated that? Well, I think the Pearl Harbor attack order did. And that Pearl Harbor attack order would justify that verbiage of negotiations are off. Yeah, they're off because I just sent them an ultimatum. Negotiations are off, and we expect action within two weeks, because they were still never really sure of exactly what day the attack would be. So uh, I thank everybody for their patience, and I hope uh, that- Could I add one more thing real, real, just real briefly, I, and I wanted to get your take on this. Uh, one thing that I've gotten out of this conversation, out of the book, is- uh, I wouldn't consider myself an isolationist, but I would consider myself someone who wants a more restrained foreign policy, having grown up through the Iraq war and Afghanistan. I think a lot of people are more weary of uh, military adventurism now, but I think with I'm this, what's that? I'm one of them. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm weary of it too. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I think this story and the story you're telling about FDR and the rest, it, it sort of brings out the sort of intricacies and, and complexities of having to do foreign policy. Yes. The book is about the sausage of making foreign policy, if you want to look at it that way. Because I spent a lot of time explaining to the average reader uh, what, how the foreign policy was being made and how many different people had different suggestions and how the president would slowly change his mind and move from this position to that position. And now he would talk out of one side of his mouth to the public and say, well, of course, we're going to remain a neutral nation and we're not going to get into this war if we can avoid it. But we can't be neutral in our hearts. And then he graduates from that to, well, we want to give all aid we can to Britain because that's our best defense to give them all the material aid we can to keep us from fighting Germany. When in reality, that's what he wants to do behind the scenes. That's exactly what he wants to do is fight Germany. But he knows he can't do it with a divided country. And he can't do it without a declaration of war. And he doesn't want a three-month debate in the Congress. So therefore, to get a war declaration that would be passed in that climate, coming out of the isolationist 1930s, you needed a casus belli, an incident, 
upon which to create, that would create a war fever spontaneously, really. And as it turned out, the three torpedo wings of ships weren't enough. And the Pearl Harbor attack was more than enough. By the way, the last thing, the reason the Office of Naval Intelligence could have markings on a chart showing what they thought were two aircraft carriers heading east across the North Pacific is because the Japanese fleet did not maintain total radio silence. And Robert Stinnett, to his credit, documented this very well. John Toland, in his book Infamy in 82, was the first one to interview this Navy seaman who, along with his lieutenant, intercepted Japanese Navy ship traffic at sea. They didn't know what the traffic said, but they knew there were Japanese ships in the North Pacific, and they tracked these, the location of these transmissions on a chart for four or five days from, I think, late November through early December. And they claimed to have sent the information to Washington. Well, that's who you would send it to, is ONI. So Stennett took the principal witness, Robert Ogg, and interviewed him off and on for 15 years and established that this guy had some real credibility. And so not only do I believe that they did, we had these intercept, radio intercept stations all over the Pacific, in, in Alaska, in Washington state, and along the coast of California. And some of the intercept stations were Navy and some of them were commercial telegraph stations. And all of this information would be sent to the Navy. So not only did the Navy intercept operators intercept 26,000 Japanese Navy messages from September to December, but they were able to intercept lines of bearing of ships transmitting at sea. And so what happened was, to end this short story, there were tremendous storms in the North Pacific at this time of year. And the tanker train, the seven oilers that the Japanese sent along with the six aircraft carriers to refuel them on the way to Hawaii, so they could get home after the attack, uh, would get lost at night during these storms and they had to be rounded up. So not only did this Navy seaman, Robert Ogg, recount these intercepts of Japanese ships transmitting at sea across the North Pacific, and not only did his Lieutenant, Lieutenant Hosmer, write a memo for his family that became a family heirloom documenting that they sent the information to Washington, but that but they thought it was only about eight units. So the flagship is the Akagi, the lead carrier. There were seven tankers. That's eight units. And guess, just to put a, a final stamp of uh, authority on what they claimed, uh, Commander Roachford in Hawaii at Station Hypo, he's the code breaker who later broke the Japanese Navy's code after Pearl Harbor and helped us win the Battle of Midway. He reported in a daily communication summary called a ComSum before Pearl Harbor, during this period, during this five-day period, that he heard the Akagi transmitting with several Marus on the radio that day. That's it. Case closed. They did not maintain radio silence. But it wasn't every ship communicating. It was the flagship of the six carriers and the seven tankers. Because he heard several Marus. Well, the tankers all ended up with the name Maru. And he specifically mentioned Akagi. 
And in his memoirs, you know, many years later, Kimmel's intelligence officer decided that, uh, yeah, Rochefort must have been wrong because, you know, we know now that, uh, you know, we thought Akagi was in port at that time. Well, Akagi wasn't in port at that time. It was at sea after November 26th. So in these, anyway, the U.S. Navy, uh, in an official report, cited in the memoirs of Kimmel's intelligence officer in 1985, retired Admiral Layton, Rear Admiral Layton, he's seen in the movie Midway, his characters in the movie Midway, he report, I mean, Rochefort reported to him in a communication summary, Akagi is transmitting back and forth with several Maroos. Well, those were the tankers accompanying the attack fleet. So that's how the ONI could have carriers plotted on a chart for somebody to write it down in his diary. So the people that want to denigrate Captain Raniff's diary no longer have a leg to stand on. And uh, the last question you had that I didn't answer yet, why wouldn't you uh, attack this force on the way to Pearl and ambush it like we did at Midway? When four of these same six carriers, you know, attacked Midway and we ambushed them and uh, destroyed all four carriers in one day. Because Roosevelt's primary concern, and so was General Marshall's primary concern, is that the American forces do nothing that would allow critics at home, that would allow the American people to blame the start of the war on us, that we do nothing to precipitate any actions. In fact, the war warnings that went out from the Army, from Marshall on November 27th, and from Admiral Stark on November 28th, both said, if hostilities cannot be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. And the reason they said that in these war warnings is their concern was national unity and how the start of the war would be perceived. And this concern was repeated under oath by George Marshall and Henry Stimson in 1945 before Congress. So uh, this was why there was no attempt to ambush the Japanese on the way. It was because uh, half of the nation would have accused us of starting the war. So if you don't think the attack is going to accomplish much damage, because the water at Pearl Harbor is shallow and the battleships have good armor on their decks, and you only think there's two carriers coming, you don't need to try to launch an ambush to stop the attack. You let it happen, it becomes the casus belli, the big incident, and then you have a unified nation. And that's exactly what happened. But that's why there was no attempt, like at Midway, to launch a preemptive attack, which would ambush the Japanese. It would have left in doubt who started the war. So can you clarify just one thing? I promise to let you go after this, because I know I've kept you forever here. But uh, so with I want to go back to that dedication. In that dedication for FDR, I get the sense that you're not dedicating it to him just simply because you're saying, wow, he's a really great uh, chess player for having, you know, done all this. If the way that you've interpreted things is the truth, I think you're considering the possibility that this was almost a necessity in some ways uh, in order for us to get involved with the conflict so that the Nazis could be defeated. We'd be living in a completely different world if the Nazis weren't defeated. Was this almost necessary, maybe? Because of the psychological climate of the country and the fact that the isolationism had actually hardened and gone up to 80%, didn't want to fight Germany by December 1941. 
because public opinion polling was a science then. It was a new science. There were public opinion polls being taken all the time, and Roosevelt was very much attuned to them, especially the Gallup polls, but there are other polls also. And so, yes, I, I because of the psychological climate in the country, I do think it was a necessity that the United States be attacked by one of the members, one of the principal members of the Axis for us to get into the war as a united people. You know, Yamamoto wasn't all wrong in wanting to break the will of the American people. I mean, it's almost as if he was looking into the future and seeing what happened to us during Vietnam, where we had a war of choice, not necessity, and the people didn't buy it. They weren't accepting the reasons for it, and there was no national unity. I mean, Yamamoto, in a way, was right in the sense that, yes, the American will could be broken over fighting an Asian war in a faraway place that didn't mean anything to them. He wanted to do it with severe losses on the first day of the war. And, you know, he said he would run wild for the first six months or the first year. And after that, he could guarantee nothing because he knew Japan could not win a long war against a two ocean Navy, against a, in, the industrial might of the United States. He knew that. So he was hoping to win a quick war, which where we would sue for peace and say, we don't want to play. You can, you can have your damn Dutch East Indies and your Malay, Malaya, we don't care. Uh, he just misjudged our psychology. Uh, like it's amazing that somebody who was here for three tours of duty would do that, but he misjudged our psychology, but he was right in the sense that the Americans can have their will broken and can lose interest in a faraway war and be totally demoralized to the point where public agitation is so great that they have to withdraw from the war, which is what happened over Vietnam and in Cambodia. So uh, yeah, I think it was necessary either that Hitler attack us directly and forcefully, or that Japan do so directly and forcefully in a way that was unmistakable and couldn't be denied and that would really stir up the American people. It was necessary. And since Hitler didn't do it, in fact, he was so terrified initially of a two-front war that on the day that he invaded the Soviet Union, you know what he did? He sent a message to every U-boat and said, you are not allowed to attack any American ships for any reason, not even in self-defense. Because he was so concerned with fighting his war against Stalin that he he forbade the U-boats to attack American ships. Uh, later, he clearly changed his mind and went, went off a little bit because he, he tells Sepp Dietrich in August, you know, if the Japanese and the Americans fight, I'm going to declare war on America. I think he was just sick of Lend-Lease and of Roosevelt's speeches and of, the, uh, of America declaring that it was neutral when it really wasn't neutral at all. Uh, I, he just got really tired of it. But yeah, I think it was necessary that this happened since Hitler didn't take the bait and he didn't declare war on us. And he, he didn't send out the Tirpitz and two of his battle cruisers to attack the U.S. Navy escorts. Uh, but Japan did. Yeah, they sure did. And it was not only that, it was, a, it was our playground. It was, uh, we had one playground called Cuba and the other one was Hawaii. And uh, so it's a complicated story. It's a very human story of, of great men saying, what am I going to do about this? 
these people tell me I should do this. These people tell me I shouldn't. These people tell me if I do this, I'm nuts. These people tell me if I don't do this, I'm nuts. And his major concern was that the United States might enter the war so late that it would be too late to affect the outcome. Uh, in fact, when Harold Ickes wrote him this famous memo about cutting off Japan's oil in late June, 41, and said, hey, if we cut off Japan's oil, we could get into the war really easy because of the tripartite pact. What Ickes told the president was, if we wait too long to get into the war, not only will we not be able to have a big effect on the outcome, we will not have a friend anywhere in this wide world. Churchill even made a speech once. And uh, well, not a speech, it was in his memoirs. He wrote, when he wrote about the Pearl Harbor attack and how happy he was when he found out about it, he, he didn't cut, he didn't mince any words. He said he was happy, I slept the sleep of the, of the, of the thank, and felt saved. He knew that they had won the war uh, as soon as he heard the Japanese had attacked us at Pearl Harbor. He said too many people in my, his own country and elsewhere thought the Americans would never really fight and would never really get in and would just fool around at a distance and just talk and just spend a little money, but that they would never really fight. And he, uh, being half American himself and being a student of history in the U.S. Civil War, he knew that that wasn't true, that the moment the Japanese really did this, that he knew that, that the war would end for the good guys. He didn't know how many years it would take. He didn't know how many bad things would happen before we turned the tide, but he knew that instead of losing the war, he had won the war. Well, that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you again, Douglas P. Horn, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners get a copy of the book and keep up with your work? Thank you, Emilian. Uh, I appreciate the extended interview. I'm going to send you the four images that you can put up on the audio site. And I've, uh, I'll also send you that uh, link to the Amazon site. So thank you very much, JG. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Douglas P. Horn. That was a massive, monster-sized two-parter, was it not? In any case, I implore you, if you enjoyed our conversation, please, please, please check out Douglas P. Horn's book on the subject to learn more. It's available at Amazon.com. It's a print-on-demand title. Once again, the title is The McCollum Memorandum. A story of Washington, D.C. in 1940 to 1941. I think you will find it a riveting read, and it could be a really great stocking stuffer for any of your family or relatives and friends that are history buffs. I would highly recommend checking it out at Amazon.com. Once again, the title is The McCullum Memorandum, A Story of Washington, D.C. in 1940 to 1941. Also, if you can, please, please, please consider supporting me if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views. You can support me over at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a $1, $5, $10, $15, and $100 tier. Supporting me at any of those tiers will greatly help this show to keep producing the content that you enjoy. And of course, at the $10 tiers and above, you get a producer's credit shout out. So 
Producers credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page. And again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, along with a few of our wonderful sponsors that helped keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. That's to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.